0: Hi,
1: I'm Holly. Hi, I'm Campbell.
0: And this is Get With The Programme, the podcast for people who just love TV.
1: If you want TV in your ears, this is happening for you right now. You are getting to listen to that TV. In a a way, you're in a situation where you can't look at a thing. You might be on a train or on a bus. You might be at the gym. Where do people listen to podcasts? Uh,
0: Walking. Walking? Walking in the streets, in the car. Um, If you're any of those places, hopefully... This is an hour of something very good and TV friendly to enjoy. Um, Before we get to our guest for this week, this is just a quick reminder that applications are open for our two talent schemes that we run as part of the Edinburgh TV Festival. Uh, the Network, which is our free entry level scheme for people who are just knocking on the door of TV and want to get in. And uh, wants to Watch, which is our more senior scheme, um, which is for people who are already in the world of TV but want to get that little bit further. Um, so there's information about both those schemes, the application process, the things we look for, and what you actually get by being a part of them um, on our websites, which uh, you can find at www.tvtalentschemes.co.uk. And the deadline for both of those is April 27th. So you've still got a little bit of time to have a think proper application and get ready to
1: hit send. So moving from knocking on a door to get to the other side and then there maybe being another door on another side, that puts me in the mind of the Crystal Maze, <laughs> which is relevant to this week's guest, uh Neil Simpson, who in a way has one of the best job titles in television. He's the creative director at Fizz. And he's not the creative director of Fizz, you know, if you have had like a coke recently or a fanta <laughs> He's not creatively directed the stuff at the top of the glass. He's creative director of his TV, which um, is a fantastic uh, part of the RDF group. And Neil is good fun. My only regret with this podcast is that I did not arrange for a piano to be there. Because oh. Neil would have made great use of it. Neil is a, a triple threat. I don't know what the three, th- the, he, can, he, can, he, can, he can sing. I think he can probably dance he's yeah, very funny he's, he's light on his feet he's a quadruple threat as well because also he's, he's an amazing television executive so that's four things and that's just the tip of the iceberg um, and uh, it's just a great person to spend an hour with so hopefully you can vicariously enjoy that of uh, next hour where we talk about Crystal Maze but we also talk about how Neil got into television um, which is a really interesting uh, story and hopefully lots of things there for people to learn and pick up on Uh, welcome Neil, thanks for joining us. Hello. I hope you're as excited as me to talk, just to talk about television and what you love about it and, and how you got into it. Um, I'm ready. Are you ready Neil?
2: I think so. We've both had because uh, it's we are this, currently this is, doing espressos. audio only, we've both yeah. had two double espressos, so this is gonna be on we're
1: gonna be on fire. We're gonna fly by. Well let's fly back in time, Neil, to the to the beginning. <laughs> well the beginning of time, but to when you were growing up. Can you remember what television was like for you as as a child? Did something you watched a lot? Did you watch it with your family?
2: So um, my parents were in the army, so I moved around a lot when I was growing up, and spent a bit of time in a military base in Germany, which was fun. Um, so we had like limited UK shows when I was in it's
1: like British sort of forces broadcasting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
2: and I can remember. Um, Johnny Ball Think of a Number yeah and I can really remember my favourite show was Tony Hart Heartbeat yeah with the gallery and Morph Morph of course um, and Blue Peter and really engaging with those shows where it felt really educational and sort of stimulating and you were learning stuff um, and they were just great you just Companions like when I was growing up, like people like Johnny Ball and Tony Hart were just mesmeric, like, yeah, just very them. calming, yeah,
1: presences. And both of them have those sort of voices, and they do catch you at that age where you are genuinely curious. And certainly, with Johnny Ball, I remember he'd asked the sorts of science and maths questions that you as a child would want to ask, you know, like, how many elephants does it take to do X, Y, or Z? And I think, yeah, those things still exist, obviously, but
2: and then. He-Man right. yes so I was I loved He-Man and those cartoons with the m- moral message at the end of it delivered by He-Man or man at arms to camera even though it's not yeah, camera straight, straight yeah. down the lens like yeah. today kids we've learned we've learned about you know don't trust Skeletor and, yeah. uh, and lying in general um, so the thing was that I, I had such fond memories of He-Man and um, obviously we've now got Netflix and my son's nine years old And so I said to him, like, they've just put He-Man on Netflix, let's watch He-Man. And, I mean, it's one of those things which uh, we'll probably come to later on when we think about bringing shows back and the way that we remember things so fondly. The quality of He-Man... Of the animation is quite poor. I mean, it's not just the quality of the animation, the amount of animation. So the thing that was so interesting about it was they clearly had a very limited number of animated sequences and then they'd sort of draw characters over it or put the animation on different backgrounds. So you'd have He-Man running from left to right and then in the next shot, they've just turned it the other way around and then he's running from right to left. And then they'd have different characters doing exactly the same moves where they've just painted over the new character. But just, And then the kit of parts was almost identical in the next episode. And you realise yeah. that they'd done so... There was so little... The quality of this show yeah. was so low. And yet, we were satisfied with that. And then you see what you've got to deliver now, with, like, Nexo, does it, does it Lego Ninjago, deten- like, amazing animation with incredible storyboards. Like, we're watching Iron Man together at the moment, the animated adventures. And there's self-contained narratives in every episode with a narrative <laughs> arc across two seasons of... Like forty episodes, that's weaving in and out with the character development. It's so that you kind go, of sophistication you'd expect from a drama. It's you know? incredible. And then you go back and look at He-Man, and I'm going, "I'm really sorry, Annis, This was a bomb steer from Dad. Let's yeah. Never talk of this again."
1: Because I have had a similar experience with with Mind and Shira. Because I think that is um, and, same and, same and, universe. And, and a bit of He-Man, same universe. Interesting how they introduced character Shira in the first one. But also I sort of noticed that, like, how cheap the animation was, but also just how old-fashioned it was in a way. Like the way when you listen to all the voice actors now, you're like, oh, those guys are clearly in their 50s and 60s. And it's got a real kind of 60s sort of feel to it, and like, a bit like the original kind of Batman series. But I was surprised at how trad it came across. But also what a logistical feat to kind of work out how cheaply can you make a cartoon. Like just really just getting it down to like what can we reuse and what can we... And so... I love that we spend
2: the first, what, 30 minutes of this podcast deconstructing He-Man and She-Ra.
1: Why not? I always remember that was the first time I became aware of people moaning, or at least like parents moaning, they're just toy adverts. I always remember that being like a thing that people say against it. Oh, what are you watching that for? It's just a half-hour advert for toys. So you mentioned Johnny Ball and uh, Blue Peter and, and shows like that. Did you have a sense of at that age, oh these are these are programs that are being made, did you have a sense of how those things are made, Did you is there something you even thought about at that age?
2: Growing up where I did, and it sort of it, London and television felt like a million miles away, I mean when I was growing up, I think I came to London twice and it was just this incredible big scary terrifying adventure on both days and then back to my midlands life because we settled in Leicester and never would have imagined I'd end up working in TV. Um, No connection or understanding of it at all, but I was very much driven by the arts and um, performance and theatre and all that kind of stuff growing up, so that was where I was originally planning going.
1: Did you study those things?
2: I mean, tragically, yeah, yes,
1: yeah, all the way to the end,
2: uh, yeah, pretty
1: much, pretty much, yeah, theatre, god. So, did you do theatre studies or did you do drama?
2: I did, uh, it was. It was theatre studies at A level. It was one of my Ls. I did economics and English as well, so I wasn't yeah. just you know all That'd the, come the solid choices. Yeah, thanks. So um, and then I did uh, theatre studies and English yeah. at the University of Birmingham, and I got really into when I got on the when when I was at um, Birmingham Uni, they they had a, a radio station, Burn FM, nice. Birmingham University Radio Network. Love it. Yeah, and um, the Guild TV channel.
1: Yes, very a very, um, a very well-respected student TV station.
2: And uh, Red Brick was the, the newspaper. And I got really involved in Guild TV and uh, Burn FM and also ended up running our comedy club. So we had a comedy club that would, uh, was on every, like, two weeks, uh, part of the comedy network. And um, so I ended up sort of hosting that, sort of comparing so those nights. It. And yeah. so would
1: you, would you book the, the other comedians as well? Would they all be... Student comedians, t- or?
2: so We were part of this thing called the Comedy Network, which was um, it was run by Avalon, and they they had this sort of network of tours. So you bought into, they would book the acts, and, and so we were having like Ross Noble and Peter Kay and That's Dave cool. Gorman, like, but, but way before yeah. they were famous. So nobody kind of ever appreciated at the time that they'd just seen acts that were going to be yeah huge. So that was like the, the uni experience really opened my eyes up to media and producing content, and the thing I loved most was the radio, actually, it was doing the, the radio show, and then, so this is slightly tragic, so I had my own show on a Saturday, and, which um, is three hours, uh, and every show I'd get, like, a couple of phone calls from different ladies, okay. and, um, I was used to come off air thinking, yeah, you know, I've got, like, this little fan base of ladies, and... My best friend at university was uh, ended up being my wife, Claire, and I then discovered at the end of university that she'd just been putting voices on. She was the only one calling, just for a bit of a laugh with her mates, because of how cocky I'd be when I finished the show. No one else was calling.
1: Wow, what kind of variety of voices would she pull in? She's very good with regional yeah. accents. So it's kind of you, you felt like not only have I got a big female fan base, but like I've got I've got regional appeal. It's not just. Uh, not just locally, but yeah, everyone I, I, everyone's was, in, I so. felt
2: like I was catering to the nations and regions, but it turned out I was catering to somebody who was using me as a practical joke.
1: How about that? I, I had a student radio show as well. I did, did not you? have any callers in. I had a really bad slot. Um, I love the fact that you've blamed
2: the slot. That's no, no, something no, no, that we've <laughs> taken for granted. I, to yeah. I had a
1: really bad slot. Um, it yeah. wasn't a bad slot. Actually, I think I was quite happy with the slot because I think I sort of wanted to do it, but also was quite scared of the notion of actually anyone hearing me. was quite like a weird. What was, I'll pay for this what, with it. what was the slot? Um, I'm trying to think. I think it was something like sort of nine till midnight on like a Tuesday or a Thursday. It's not like it's two a.m. No, it's true, but I think that's quite peak. People being down the pub, drinking cheap.
2: Did you what kind of li- what kind of broadcast? rate... because we had an FM license, but we could only have it for like two weeks. We like had it for a year. It, it was, it was something
1: like I remember there were lots of really weird legal things that we had to do, and I remember. One thing that always stuck with me was we had to record every broadcast, and I think it could be picked up beyond um, like the campus, because I went to like, a campus university went to Kiel, from the middle of nowhere, and they had all these really weird rules about you had to tape everything that you you're doing, and they worked out the cheapest way to do that because, after a while, tapes are quite expensive. They had a knackered old video recorder that could only record sound, and they used to put VHS tapes in it, and record it at super long play, so essentially, I like could a free hour videotape could record like 12 hours of audio. So, that, but I just felt if ever they wanted to check like the audio archive, it was just a bunch of VHS tapes that just had sound on them. Amazing. I don't know whoever would have buy, evaluated those, but um, so what was yeah. your
2: kind of what was your
1: USP of your show? There what wasn't kind of really, of there you you know? wasn't really, I mean, it was for me, I think it was a lot of like soul and jazz, and, oh, and, yeah, and I think, and I think <laughs> that's how because like, that's that's the music I like, and I think. Also like no one was really covering that. So I think when they were sort of divvying it up, I was like, oh I'd love to do a show at like this level, well, no one else did that kind of music. So you can have that. And that was that was quite exciting. I remember going back and like telling my friends about it and this says a lot about the State of Radio at the time. They were really keen to like, like oh we'd all love to be on the show and we'll do like we'll do like characters, we'll be like a posse. And I was like, no, thank you. <laughs> But in, in retrospect that might have been more fun but now that i think about it that would have been slightly more embarrassing if tapes of that surfaced whereas i think if any tape did surface it would just be me being very serious going here's some miles davis i don't think it was as dynamic as yours i don't think, I don't think we had any callers in i don't think anyone could call in. but anyway it's not about me and my radio career it's about you so you obviously realized right i'm sort of essentially sort of producing comedy and putting things together and be involved in that world, doing your own radio show. At this point, are you starting to think, "Well, this, rather than what I'm studying as a degree, this, this is what I want to do when I leave here."
2: And this idea of how, where do you go afterwards, and what's so terrifying about that gap from uni to the real world is you've been in this kind of environment where you have to deliver coursework and these set time front tables, and then suddenly the whole world is your oyster. People Clue who to contact, yeah. or what to do, or when no one's chasing be. you up as yeah. such, there are no, so no deadlines for life, yeah. No one owes you anything, yeah, um, which is scary. So, uh, I, I guess I, I realized about halfway through my degree that I definitely didn't want to go into acting or theater, and I, I really liked populism, I love being part of the radio and the, the TV and the comedy and entertaining people, yeah. So, in my final year, I'd contacted Avalon because they were obviously booking the, the comedy nights that I was looking after and they obviously had a huge presence in uh, Edinburgh um, at the festival the Fringe. Yeah. So they had summer jobs as leafletters for um, the, all the live gigs. So I went up and did, a, a, did all, all of August on my feet for like 12 hours handing out leaflets in the street. Just did that for a month and it was amazing. It was hard work and just so exciting fun and vibrant and meeting all these amazing people and it felt very sort of rock and roll because the comedy thing was just sort of becoming the new rock and roll, you know, Newman and Baddiel had not that long before, you know, sold out Wembley and and comedy was becoming a new sort of thing and there was like uh, Noel Fielding and Julian Barrett had just launched Mighty Boosh and Al Murray and so these amazing acts and Comedy and entertainment was clearly sort of where I was sort of most interested and stimulated, and I, I stayed up in Birmingham after I graduated and did some work at uh, BBC Pebble Mill. So while I was there, I wrote to I wrote to Avalon and said like, have you got any opportunities? And um, I ended up going down to Lon- coming down to London. That was my big move down to London was to go and join their live department, looking after the comedy network, getting involved in the promotion and producing the Edinburgh. Festival stuff and then London tours and various other things. It was this fantastic introduction to. Yeah. And as you like say, like kind of a scene. great
1: time as well, yeah. by the kind of acts you must have been working with then.
2: So I did that for a year and a bit and then uh, went to work and met some people who had set up a sort of comedy and theatre tiny startup. That was one of those situations where we were selling out runs. We were doing tours that were doing really well. We were winning awards to the stuff in Edinburgh and no one was making any money. they have got this incredible <laughs> business model, which was we only work with young, undiscovered talent that needs a break. Right. And we don't lock them into any management deals. So the moment... That so like the
1: factory records of, uh, of comedy, in a way. Basically,
2: the moment they break, someone else is going to swoop in and coach and, and and them. Yeah, and, you and then you get never get it. any of the long tail of the investment that you put So you're in running a charity, <laughs> Pretty maybe. much. And we were the charity case, uh, and it was just it was this glorious, naive, optimistic thing where yeah. we were working really hard, producing work that we were really proud of, um, <laughs> and, and like running a, a deficit. And my uh, girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, and um, she, I met her at university, and she was uh, a journalist, and she just bought her own place, and I couldn't afford to move in with her. I kind of realised that my job was not actually able to sustain my life. Yeah. So maybe it was time for a bit of a change. And so, what happened to sort of preempt the conversation of how did I get to television? Um, my favourite show on TV at the time was so great, Norton. And um, I remember they put an advert in uh, the Media Guardian because um, they were crewing up to go five nights a week. And I wrote a ridiculous letter to them that was, I mean, it's one of those things where if these debates afterwards, do you you write witty, silly, flippant letters or do you write like a straight letter? And I wrote a ridiculous letter which just seemed to chime with their sensibilities. And they called me up and asked me to go and meet them. And I met with Graham Stewart and um, uh, one of the day producers, Amanda Sangorski. And we just had such a giggle and they were amazing and they offered me a job. And yeah. I was there for about a year and a half and that was my first uh, gig in TV, was working on V at Norman when it was five last week. It was just the best. It was very sort of mad, dysfunctional, funny.
1: Seeky pants stuff, show
2: Yeah, because like it I was imagine. like you know, five, days, five yeah. days it was on air. Like it's and we stuff. had three teams, so we were on this kind of rotation system, so um, you were responsible for a show every three days. And you've got obviously all the acts coming in and some are dropping out last minute and it was items with the audience on the show it's just it was such a fantastic sort of thrown in a deep end introduction to tv
1: that's great and i think that's interesting you mentioned about the letter thing. So i think that's something that sort of is quite common when talking about that that first opportunity is like i think there's a lot to be said for the cheeky genuine letter that's, that at least reflects you I think writing sort of a madcap letter, if that's not really what you're all about, is probably not a great move, but it's being memorable, isn't it? It's about getting noticed, because I imagine they would have got millions of letters, as you say, the kind of straight letters that say, like, I'm a diligent this, that, and the other. But I think if you were able, they clearly saw something in that letter, which sounds like it was borne out when you, when you met them, that you, that you could work together and that you sort of saw things the same way.
2: Well, I think I'd probably be doing this podcast a disservice, Skipped the bit that was when I was working. It was called Fat Bloat Productions where we were, and so when Claire had bought this flat and I couldn't afford to pay my half of the mortgage to sort of move in with her, so yeah. she, bought, she got a lodger instead, and that was the point at which I was thinking this this woman is definitely the woman I want to spend the rest of my life with, yeah. and I can't afford to move
1: in with her. Some like of the beginning of a sitcom premise in a good way, and
2: and and so the hours I was working because it was like day and night working on the shows in the evening and and obviously in the office during the day I just knew I was never going to get out so I quit with nothing to go to I mean I was broke so I joined a temping agency and I gave myself a month to try and get into TV at that point I kind of decided that's kind of where I wanted to go um, because I've done of comedy and live theatre for by then about three years, and I loved it. But I'd learned enough to know that I mean, so few people were making like, a living out of it. I mean, yeah. it's hand to mouth. And I, I love TV, um, I loved, that was what I loved watching. And I loved the idea of being involved in stuff that was entertaining millions of people, not like yeah. Yeah. 20 people, or with some of my shows at Edinburgh, <laughs> eight. Um, and so I left with nothing to go to, and I joined this temping agency, and I got a placement working in the customer complaints department at Debenhams, which was amazing, right? Because the reasons that people would phone in to complain yeah. about stuff were, some of the, and some of the letters that people would write in were, I started uh, which I could go off on a map. Yeah. But that, that was a calculated move to go, right, I, I earn more money as a tenant. So I was like doubled my wage overnight. Yeah. And I was earning working this thing I love. And I did it with the idea that I would be working sensible hours so I could spend my evenings just writing letters to people. So I wrote, I mean, you know, it's an exaggeration to so say I wrote 100 letters. I did write in excess of probably about 50 letters targeted to different people at different production companies, listing the shows that they made and asking if I could meet with. And I, and I did that in a period of like seven days, just churned all these letters out. I can remember my mum had bought me stamps because I was like, I can't even afford the yeah. stamps. I'm like, bro. I was at the Debenham scene for 10 days, and I met, I'd met met with a few people, and they would give me a bit of time off to go meet people. Yeah. And SoCV were one of the people I'd met, and 10 days after doing it, that's when I got my first job. But there was a grim moment where I'd sort of gone, I have to go to nothing, step out from it and focus on it because temping in to try and break in and put those letters out there and you know, 90% of the people I wrote to never wrote back but some of them did and I remember who they are and I still know, still see them and I remember the
1: letter That's that thing isn't it I suppose of If you are working kind of on social hours and you've got no time to kind of think about what your next move is, that even though it was only that short period, it kind of at least probably confirmed for you that it was the right move and you were able to have that bit of space.
2: You know, try and avoid platitudes, but it didn't come to me. Like no one offered me a job. Yeah. Cold road
1: to You didn't know anybody. I didn't
2: know anybody, I had no connections in the industry. I came from the Midlands, I didn't know anybody when I down other than contacting Avalon going looking at the stuff I've done and I've done that placement when I was at university like leafleting on the streets for them to show that I was a worker um, and then yeah that sort of the thing from State TV was that was just me applying for as much stuff as I possibly could, people have this expectation that it's just going to come to them and it, it doesn't You know, we get about 50 people who apply for every job that we advertise here and there's only one place available it's tough out got to put yourself out
1: yeah and you sort of mentioned that you were with um you were at so was it was a year and a half yeah initially so that's 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 a that's a good chunk of time yeah. really for your, for your first role so you must have been constantly proving yourself and you know based on what I'm saying is like a tenure that long wouldn't happen by accident you must have really been valuable to them can you remember some of the things you did that you think in the position you're at now like oh I can see why they kept me around I can see I can see how I made an impact when I was there
2: I had a, I had a come down ego come down because yeah. I've been used to being in an office where there were like three or four of them and we did yeah. everything yeah. so I felt like king of the world
1: it's Free your opinions at any point yeah
2: yeah. and then there's the hierarchy yeah. uh, and the yeah so I had a proper slap down on like the first couple of weeks of uh, Pipe down Sparky Yeah. A researcher now because I was producing and directing and sort of feeling like I was this yeah. big dog and I was really <laughs> not um, and didn't know what I was talking about so that was a steep learning curve um, but it was I mean, Jörn Magnussen was just such an incredible creative force and a, a, a lot of the people that were working on that show who stayed for because I can't remember I think it was like five seasons We did yeah. it, the ones that stuck it out were just really amazing people to be around because we were churning around so many ideas and it was such a ruthless hungry ideas churner of a production yeah. to be working on and it's just very stimulating and dysfunctional as well I mean highly competitive we were all narky with each other and, yeah. um, and it was all sort of like who'd done the best show that week and all that kind of stuff but when you look back at it you just go wow it's learned so much
1: made it a bit better, better as worked. well yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. and, and you know, that competitiveness was really good it was really unhealthy and healthy at the same time the thing I was kind of most proud of on that show was probably not one of the best items that we ever did but it was just the kind of achievement of doing it was I remember I said to Yearn I really want to do taking an audience member out of the studio and putting them live on stage in a Western musical like in the show, yeah. the same show. He was like, you're never going to do that. So I said, look, if I can make it happen, will you do it? And it he was like, fine. If you can make it happen, you can do it. And I remember we got in touch with Grease, the musical, and we ended up managing to get this situation where we got a guy, pulled him out of the audience at the end of the first half of the show.
1: So you'd be down at ITV Studios? Yeah,
2: down at ITV Studios. And then
1: Studios. that was on the Witch. Yeah. Right? Yeah, so i doable was cool. doable.
2: So we dressed him as a pink lady. Yeah. In the studio, put him on the back of a bike, drove him uh, to the stage door. Yeah. And pushed him out on stage to be part of the finale of uh, Grease the musical, all pretty much in like real time. But it was just yeah. one of those things where when it goes out on air, you're going, oh, my God, like
1: we, made we just <laughs> took a guy yeah.
2: on the back of a bike and put him in a western musical. But silly, but yeah. just joyous. It was just that fun inventiveness, and that was the thing I loved most about the job. It's just you have these mad ideas, and then you get a chance to do it, and then you know, people watch it, and it brings them happiness moment of happiness in this yeah. mad world.
1: And um, using that sort of muscle over, the, over that sort of period you were there, like developing ideas all the time, you know, the sheer sort of quantity, is that when you sort of realised? Sort of developing ideas and bringing things to life is, is something I sort of love and I'm pretty decent at
2: oh god uh, well when we knew that it was going to come to an end loads of people went off obviously to different shows rightly or wrongly the show that I really wanted to work on was Des and Mel so and I think it was because it was the only other five days a week type yeah show I just yeah. I really loved chance. I really loved that. So it was mid afternoon,
1: like, was it? Mid afternoon. Mid- afternoon. Yeah.
2: yeah. In his mid-70s. Yeah. And um, so I, I wrote to the guy who ran the series at the time.
1: Could you tell us now what what is a kind of desert male type idea? And
2: we we're we we're trying to bring more. I've been like brought in to try and do more sort of mischief, and I guess sort of yeah, try and do different stuff, and then where where it kind of. Sp- Spilled out from there was um, Paul O'Grady would do the fill-in weeks when Des would have a holiday, ah. and after that, because he rated really well, ITV yeah. gave him his own series. and ended up going to work on that. So we launched the Paul O'Grady show, and I just really loved that churn of ideas. And a friend I'd met when we were on V Gray Norton, we stayed in touch and we were developing ideas and, and pitching them to various people. and We met with um, a guy called David Lindman set up all three media which was, was like brand new super indie at the time so we went to go and work there um, like developing ideas centrally we got a couple of things away and then david asked as if we'd joined lion tv and then that's how i moved into lion television okay. and then started combining doing development with producing shows and i stayed there for i think i nearly five years okay um, yeah worked with adam wood and matt steiner um, who went on to do um, Release the Hounds um, yeah. and they sort of, sort of set up their own indie, and they're, they're really amazing guys and they were just, it was great working to them and, and learning from them
1: before they went and ran off. When you, know, when you sort of look back, when you, know, you, you don't necessarily like moving around for the sake of it, when for you have been the moments when you realise right now, now now is time for a change when have those kind of crossroads moments made themselves obvious to you so I've moved once
2: in 12 years so I'm like
1: that's got to be a record I don't in the th- industry I don't
2: think I, uh, the ca- I don't yeah but the thing is it's there are people who move around like every two years, which is kind of like a bit of a joke. There are people in the industry who are really funny because they've spent more time on gardening leave than they have actually doing any work in like the last three yeah, years. Yeah,
1: I mean, that's a great scam. Which is on. like, if you can <laughs> yeah. pull it off, yeah, that's yeah. amazing,
2: right? And, and the, But there are people who, like, it, it is kind of a bit of a joke that they're yeah. always within two years moving on to the next thing. And I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's my upbringing, I don't know if it's my uh, insecurity. Um, I, I really always liked that idea of bedding in somewhere and um, being part of a culture and and informing that culture. Yeah. And I stayed at Lyme for about five years and I can remember when I had the opportunity to join here, I handed in a letter of resignation. I cried because I was so upset about leaving. Because I yeah. th- th- Lyme was such a lovely company and they're really great people. And I really enjoyed my time there. And then I joined here in... Uh, Twenty eleven, and I haven't missed out on opportunities. So I joined as like a development producer, and then I ended up running entertainment development. And then less than three years ago, was given the opportunity to set up my own label here. So I don't feel like staying here. I've missed out. I've, I feel yeah. like I've achieved more by being part of this place. And I'm really fortunate that the people I work with here are. I mean, they're just great people, I've, I've loved being here this is my, I've done seven years in December and, and I've done my best work here, surrounded yeah. by people I really enjoy, so what would be better, where, where am I going to go?
1: Yeah, when you talk about the progression you sort of detail just in the time that you've been here, it's like well that's what you'd want You know, the opportunity to kind of run that department and then to actually sort of set up your own label is, is enormously exciting, that's something that wouldn't necessarily be offered to someone didn't know the organisation well. In terms of that, that feeling, so we sort of skipped ahead a little bit, but when did you first feel, and given what your first sort of proper job in telly was, it might have been that, but when did you first feel like, I am, I am working in telly, this is for me, and everything i thought about it is right, and this is, this is where the rest of my career is going to be? God, that,
2: that was the uh, great note. Yeah. was because they... Graham Stewart and Joan Magnuson were just amazing. And also, I was so spoiled with working for a show with Graham Norton because he would come into the office every day and he knew everybody's name and he was so gracious. And when stuff didn't go right, the culture and the way that it would all be discussed was, we didn't get that right. What can we learn from that? How can we make that better? Yeah. And of course, I was really spoiled because I didn't know at the time that someone like him, who's so talented and gracious and like, lovely to be part of, we cared and invested so much in the show and in him as part of that because of the way he yeah. treated us. I've since worked with some absolutely <laughs> shockers, yeah. and no, I've worked on a show where there was a the host that was so <laughs> horrific. You're like. I really hope this item fucks up, like, <laughs> yeah. live on there, just so that they look stupid, because they were so horrible to us. Um, and so I was really spoiled with um, working on that show because it was such a happy, fantastic, stimulating ex- ex- environment. And I can remember one, that, do you know what, we did this one thing where we had Sylvester Stallone's monk. I'm going to tell this story. This is Dude, terrific. This is
1: good. Jackie, good old Jackie. Jackie
2: Stallone. Jackie Stallone came on and she claimed that she could read people's fortunes from their buttocks, right? That's segment goal. I'm going to rely on this anecdote only ever being heard by about three people on this podcast. They, they went, let's photocopy someone's ass on a photocopying machine and fax it live on the show through to Jackie and she's going to do a reading. Yeah. So. Everyone looked at me and went, "Like Neil, will do it," which was right because I'm yeah. the sort of knob that, with a minimal amount of flattery, will say yes to anything. Yeah. So I photocopied my ass. Now I've never seen my ass because yeah, the, how do you? Yeah, because where it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Turns out it's quite hairy,
1: right? <laughs> and this is how you find out. So,
2: so when they faxed it through, she thought it was a vagina. That that is the end of that anecdote.
1: Did that get broadcast? That was broadcast. That was broadcast.
2: She wow. actually said on air, "Is this a vagina?" And they were like, "No, it's definitely an ass."
1: Wow. What, and
2: that what? was my contribution to <laughs> be Graham not
1: Wow. That, even by the, the standards of that show, that's quite. Um, that's maybe. I'm blushing. And
2: I tipped my mum and dad off that the show was Yeah. Made, so they were thrilled.
1: So did you have like a very short window to ring them up and say it's not on? Don't worry about it. <laughs>
2: I mean, the horror my parents went through with yeah. some of the stuff that we did on our show. <laughs> but, um, yeah.
1: And what uh, what TV programme would you say you've been most proud about being involved in?
2: The show I'm most proud of is uh, Crystal Maze. It's been six and a half years trying to bring this show back. And um,
1: But that's the kind of guardian you'd want for a show like that, someone who does care about it and does think about it and sounds like sort of eat, sleep and, and drink it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I sense it could almost be its own separate episode. So I won't drill you too much for, for, for Crystal May's, uh stuff. But, I mean, obviously it's fantastic to have it back. And, I mean, in one person's opinion, I like think you've done that great job of bringing something back and making it feel faithful and fresh. But is that something that you just sort of worked out organically by instinct or at the beginning were you very much these are the, these are the non-negotiable pieces of what makes the crystal maze, the crystal maze, and here are the things we can sort of play with it was a more organic experience than that.
2: It's very much a team effort, and um, I think sometimes when people try and take credit for things, (laughs) you know where you see those sort of articles in broadcast magazines and dudes taking full credit for creating something that was actually a format that someone had optioned? Yeah, I
1: feel like like Strictly is probably of that. I feel like... about fifty well, people invented Strictly.
2: More people claim to have invented Strictly than have actually watched the show. Yeah. I think uh, same with Weakest Link as well. Also. Yes. Um, but I, I think uh, coming at it from someone who was just a super fan of it and had spent so long trying to get it away, the most important thing was bringing in uh, a team of people who cared about the show as much as, as we did. There are some people who had just such a significant impact on it. So uh, James Dillon created the original maze and one of the first things we did was get him to come in and ask him if he would rebuild the maze from scratch and it was such an important thing to have him part of it because he'd been and seen it all so he knew all the pitfalls and then we had this amazing games team led by Anna Kidd the first thing when she came in was she cut this timeline of every single game that had ever been on screen for all six series firstly by zone and then by game type so you'd watch all the Aztec games yeah. by skill and then by mystery she analysed all the games and then her thing was we're not going to repeat a single game we're going to learn what the DNA of those games are and we'll do a nod to the past because there's many yeah. mechanics out there but as much as possible it's going to all be new and that was part of the spirit of the original series is that they never repeated games across the series they always did new stuff and, and that's credit to her and that team that they really pushed forward the kind creative, um, Richard Iawadi was, uh, that was uh, as an absolutely Channel 4 as well, identifying very early on who we wanted to have a distinctive voice for the show because having some kind of in a, in a normal suit game show host type person would have killed the show yeah. and he's got such a unique character and getting him involved early, early on helped us set the tone to how we wanted to approach it so it made it easier when we were having the tortured conversations about do you bring back mumsy literally or do you bring back the spirit of mumsy but reimagine it in a different way and then there are things where you have to make there are lots of little things I don't think people really appreciate so some people complain about the fact that and the transitions between zones aren't the same as they were. So back when the show was originally on, there were two ad breaks in the commercial hour. Yeah. And the shows were like 50, <laughs> 55 minutes. Yeah. And so a transition, a move from one zone to the next, would come in the middle of a park. Yeah. And it would be like this unbroken thing. So we've got three ad breaks. It makes logistical sense to put the bit where people aren't playing a game over yeah. the ad break. So we have our transitions split over the ad breaks. And people are like, they're not doing the transitions in the same way. <laughs> no, we're not. No. Yeah. Maybe
1: then, you could film them and release them as as, yeah, as, 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 as online content. Them.
2: And then it's like other things as well that people have to, don't, you know, and it's right that viewers don't have to consider it. But sometimes people who are a little bit unfair sort of don't appreciate the bigger picture of. You know, when the when the maze was originally built you would move from one zone to the next in exactly the same way in every show you'd yeah. just start in a different zone but you'd always go from one zone to, this, to the okay. next, next zone and that's because 26 years ago you didn't have to worry about diversity and representing people of disability uh, who maybe can't climb a wall or yeah. uh, run up a ladder um, so w- we did it in a way where the maze is open to everybody and to do that means you have to approach transitions in a different way to make it more fluid because yeah. what you don't want to have is oh that's the route that you go down if you are disabled but all yeah. the normal people get to go a different way that's yeah. absolutely totally wrong so you do it in a way where you go one week we'll do it this way one week we'll do it the next way and then some people are going but it's not the same every week it's not the exact <laughs> literal same thing and you go oh it's our time travelling game show mixing it up slightly yeah Sorry to offend you. Um, so there are those things that you agonise over and you pore over in an overly sensitive way when someone writes a comment on Twitter.
1: Um, can you remember how you felt the first day you were on set when it was complete? There's a
2: there's a photo of me sat in the hatch at the top of the wall on Aztec Zone looking like a kid in a candy shop just looking at this maze that James Dillon took I think for all of us who were working on the show, we loved that show so much. Um, you know, I was 12 years old when the show first aired and I can remember coming home from school and loving it. And um, So we just put so much into trying to do the best and not letting anybody down who loved the show originally but also, which was equally important, that we were kids when we watched the show originally if we only satisfied the thirty to forty-year-olds who are obsessively protective of their heritage, yeah, and, and at the same time alienated young people, we've done massive disservice to what that show is, the spirit of the show. Yeah. And what's so lovely is we're like doubling the audience for four to fifteen-year-olds, like kids. I just had an email today from this four-year-old that uh, his mum had transcribed writing yeah. towards just saying how much loves the show. Would we do a version with kids? And it's just. Like that's what you want to be doing. Yeah. Right?
1: Because so, then that kind of gives it that extra life and you know, maybe there's a twelve year old Neil who'll bring it back in years to come, maybe, or have that same kind of impact. That's a lovely thought, isn't it? Yeah. Oh that's that's fantastic. So obviously when you're working on stuff, you you care deeply, it's very, very important to you. What sorts of TV do you watch in your own time as a punter for fun? What is your sort of T V diet like do you enjoy watching? So I watch a
2: lot of shows work rather than fun because part of my job is to, yeah, to know what's be aware of shows so there's shows that are torturous to sit through <laughs>
1: but you need to have a but, view but on I have to watch yeah. them,
2: to be aware of them um, so yeah gosh I mean I love entertainment and entertainment's a genre that I'm in so I watch a lot yeah. of entertainment
1: so if anything's shows. new out you're on it you'll be checking it yeah. out
2: and then but, then, but then that's kind of work so you're yeah. watching it in a way where you're analysing it working out what worked from it what doesn't shows i love are the ones where it kind of washes over you so um, I, I love watching ninja warrior with my son um, i just I, yeah it's such a fun show and you know it's not changing the world but it's 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 really well made and i love the characters that they put on it and there's that mix of slapstick with just jaw-dropping achievement and I love watching shows where I'm watching them with the kids So my kids obviously love Strictly Come Dancing um, and X Factor and The Voice and it's great having those shared experiences. As a, as a parent I'm watching those shows with my kids and then the shows that I watch to sort of wind down tend to be scripted stuff with uh, my wife shared viewing on Netflix yeah. so we're watching Ozark at the moment. It's
1: good isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. How far in are you? Uh, seven episodes in. Yeah. It's good. My theory is... Not a theory, but like, Jason Bateman's brilliant. I'm, I'm very much... I feel like they sort of like buried the fact he was in it. I mean, you sort of saw it on Netflix. It wasn't clear. I was like, well, if you told me it was Jason Bateman more than Linney, I would have watched it a lot sooner. But the idea that essentially he is Michael Bluth, but in this much more intense, non-comedic situation, which somehow makes bits that aren't supposed to be funny quite funny there's a lot of humour in it still despite yeah, being very a
2: some of the one-liners are yeah. cracking so we got into um, a Crazy Ex-Girlfriend which yes. is magnificent just absolutely a really special show Brooklyn Nine-Nine as well just fantastic and then Ozark were on to at the moment and at some point we will go into Better Call Saul but we needed a break from Breaking Back because it was just so intense it's
1: It's a great world it's, a, it's an intense place to spend a lot of time yeah. and I guess we could round off with what television programme do you wish you'd come up with? Big Breakfast
2: the one thing that I think has like fo- followed me throughout um, my uh, career in TV is that The Big Breakfast was as a viewer such a fantastic show to, to watch, it was such a joyous space to spend the morning much fun so inventive and the thing that I've seen through my career is the people who are that bit older who you really look up to in the industry have all worked on Big Breakfast you know Peter Usher who I work with worked on it and some amazing people worked on it and they learned so much on that show and that's a show that I think we haven't got enough of in the industry it's shows that you can cut your teeth on Yeah, you know that is a kind of factory line to nurture the next talent because the thing with like V. Graham Norton was there were a load of us who were kind of now yeah. staggering our way up there, yeah. <laughs> trying to make a career who learned a lot on a show like that that was very uh, ideas-hungry and inventive and gave you room to breathe and I think we're, we're missing shows like that and, and Big Breakfast was such a fantastic show. Big Brother as well um, you know it's, it's, a, it's a show where some of the best people who work TV and entertainment I've been working on those shows so other shows Pointless yes just a perfect quiz so simple and uh, endlessly entertaining love Wipeout wish I could have I mean Wipeout such fun that's the sort of show that you want to make
1: and also have a go on and just one thing we will just finish up. if anyone's looking to get into development what would your sort of top tips be?
2: it's really healthy to work on shows first so that you have an idea of the practicalities and the limitations of production because I'd done sort of four or five years of working on intense production before I sort of dabbled with development and it informed the kind of shows yeah. that I was developing and then also <laughs> because i have worked where I didn't have to make the shows I was pitching <laughs> <with> like <laughs> Yeah, because there are some places where you develop shows and then you pass them over to someone else to make. But I've had the misfortune of having (laughs) to be responsible for For your own ideas. All right, smart smart. (laughs) arts, can I make that happen then? Oh, it's much more (laughs) expensive than I thought it was. Um, Gosh, I guess that thing of, um, right, if you want to do development, you've got to prove that you're creative. So, um, you know, come up with ideas and present them in an inventive way, if you're cold calling to somebody to go, I'd love to work in development, you've got to attract people's attention because there's so many people out there who want those gigs, so a wider point i would make, which I've I've noticed from application processes that we go through is I've seen a lot of people apply for jobs where when you post an ad um, talking about the job and the opportunity, they write a note that basically says um, this is great for me this is, no, this, is, um, this is exactly what I'm looking for. This has come along exactly the right time this for This is the sort of thing that's going to really help my career. And I, the one thing I would say, if you're communicating <laughs> with anybody for a job, whether it's cold calling or whether it's applying for something, yeah. f- frame it within the context of: uh, if I'm offering someone a job, it's not to do them a favour. Yeah. I, I'm not. It's not like a charity. I'm, yeah. I need someone to come and do some work and add value to what we're trying to do. I want you to take on some of the heavy lifting and responsibility and the pressure yeah. and help us be more successful. So when you're applying for a job, it's not about you. It's yeah. about the person that is offering you the job. And the message that you should be sending across is, this is a fantastic opportunity and I think I'd be able to do some amazing things for you. And this is the This is what I can do. These are the skills I have this is how I think I can make a difference.
1: So to paraphrase John F. Kennedy, ask not what Neil can do for you, but what you can do for Neil. If you are applying for a job with Neil, or indeed anyone.
2: Yeah, yeah, that sounds so much better than the ramble that I just came out
1: with. But I think that's really, yeah, that's really important. I think that's good advice for anyone, for any job. Um, and, And a fantastic note to end on. Thank you very much, Neil.